Welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. My name is Michael O'Reilly, and I'm the producer and co-host of the podcast. We wanted to create this episode highlighting some interesting jewels from the first 50 episodes we've produced this year. And we know that getting into a podcast can be daunting when there's dozens of episodes to choose from. So we wanted to distill some of our varied guests from our previous episodes with some clips from the show. And Science and Non-Duality has had a long history hosting journeys into the deep questions of our universe around science, spirituality, society, and healing through its films, webinars, courses, retreats, renowned sand conferences, and now this podcast. And with this podcast, we bring you dialogues at the cutting edge of science and spirituality. We contemplate and revere the beauty, complexity, pain, and great mystery that weave the infinite cycles of existence. We explore beyond ultimate truths, binary thinking, and individual awakening, while acknowledging humanity as a mere part of the intricate web of life. And our episodes tap into Sand's rich history and collaborative future by presenting dialogues and talks, interviews, readings, music, and recordings from live Sand conferences, events, and webinars weaving the timeless wisdom and embodied experience. The production of the show comes from the support of our SAND community. So if you're a part of the SAND community, we want to thank you for making this podcast series possible. And if you're interested in becoming a community member, we offer monthly and annual memberships to help support the mission of SAND financially. And in return, you get to connect with like-minded individuals in our community portal and our monthly community gatherings. Access to our massive library of sand talks and videos from the archives. Get to take part in groundbreaking self-guided courses. And also watch our film library, which includes sand-produced films like The Art of Life, Rays of the Absolute, and The Wisdom of Trauma. So the best way to support the show is by becoming a member, but also you can help out by leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, our shows are up on YouTube, so you can leave your comments there. And this helps us to get the show to new audiences by sharing the episodes also with your family, friends, and communities. So thank you for listening and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective consciousness. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. And our first clip comes from the very first episode we did with a live interview for the podcast, and that's with meditation teacher, philosopher, and scientist Peter Russell. And in this clip, Peter explores the deep questions of the nature of reality, holding the spectrum of the absolute and the relative gently with curiosity and compassion. You see, I think it, what's happening is there's, there's two realities coexisting and both are true 
Yeah. I mean, there's the reality of I'm sitting here, I'm looking out the window and there's a tree out there and some of the leaves are brown and some of the leaves are green and there's a blue sky and I just saw a bird fly by. That's, that's the reality we live in and that's the reality we're designed to live in. You know, as, as creatures, we, we want to have this illusion <laughs> of actually being in the physical world and this is operating on us. And that's absolutely right it's totally necessary that's how we survive as organisms so that's when we're talking we are talking that way because that is that is the actual world we live in and then there's the understanding that all of this is actually an appearance in consciousness you know when we begin to understand the world we realize yeah but you know I'm seeing a green leaf, but actually what's happening is green light is stimulating one area of my retina and brown light is stimulating another area of my retina and messages going back to the brain and the brain in a fraction of a second puts all this together along with all the other senses and everything and creates this reality we experience. So the exp what we're actually experiencing is a reality created in the mind that's appearing in consciousness so in that sense consciousness is absolutely fundamental because everything i know even you know our mathematical understanding our physics our laws of physics all of that stuff is all happening in consciousness it's all an arising in our experience and that is also absolutely true and so these are the two realities. You know, one, you know, the realization that consciousness is absolutely fundamental. It is all, all we, all we ever actually know is the activity that's happening in the mind. That's all we ever actually know. And yet, that within that reality, we, we give it an objective quality in order that we can work with the world, interact with it, and go and, you know, brush up the leaves, get them out of the way, get them off the drive, that sort of thing. So the two coexist for me, and that, that's important. It's not like, it's not that everything is consciousness, therefore matter is an illusion. It's not so, there is something, there is something out there in the world, definitely. There's what I call a tree, but when you look into it, the tree is not made of what I thought it was made of. It's like, the brain has created this impression. Another creature may have a different, completely different perception of the tree. You know, like a bat is going to be seeing it in ultrasonics. It's going to have a very different impression of the tree. So there is some, I'm not saying there's nothing out there. There's definitely a world out there. But all we know of it is the particular representation of it that our brains create for us. Next, we hear from evolutionary biologist, Monica Galliano. And in her groundbreaking research, she proved that plants respond to the sounds and that the entire planet is listening, not only through the animals and insects that we inhabit on this planet, but also through plant life. And in this clip, she discusses her current research into the ice age of our planet and our planet's propensity for resilience. Well, and even our own species, as we know, we've been through two ice ages, for sure. And uh, here in Australia, you know, Aboriginal Australians are, at the very least, 60,000 years old as a living culture. So we have definitely, as you know, us as humanity, as we are now, 
we have actually been through an ice age and an extinction event before. And um, I think what I'm trying to contemplate on in the context of this talk that I need to prepare um, is like what was the special ingredient that we had available and connected with that seems to be missing or be misplaced right now. And again, I think for me, I go back to listening and listening to vo the voices of others which are non-humans who have been here longer than us and who have, you know, they might have uh, wisdom and, um, and even uh, perspectives that we cannot even conceive of. And, um, and I've experienced it myself in the small, you know, in the small scale. Uh, I remember when I was trying to do the experiment about this, the associative learning in plants and I had all my little ideas of how I was gonna do it with the sunflowers and I had all my design and set up and of course you run the pilots and it should work and everything, the setup should work and yet the plants are not doing anything. <laughs> And uh, so, of course, as the good scientist I am, I assume is the plant that doesn't know how to do this rather than I'm, I am the one doing it wrong. And, uh, and then I abandoned it. So that pilot was like, oh, okay, this didn't work. But then I guess the seed of the idea remains. And then I had to encounter a plant to give me almost like the keys to open those uh, notions. And, uh, and then that experiment came out uh, truly as a collaboration. But obviously I was the one not ready to hear, even if I was given the information when I was trying the first time. And, uh, and so I feel, sometimes now I feel as if the work that I've done with the plants was the pilot for the big work that is gonna come through that it might need to be done in relation to, um, yeah, we're gonna collaborate with the earth and this experiment that she's making, uh, she's creating it with us as well. And everyone else is here, not just humans. But um, maybe we just need to be, you know, told a bit clearer what the role that we have in the picture. And uh, because let's face it, I mean, like we have spoken of like, okay, we cannot cut trees anymore. No, the devastation is no longer possible, you know. Uh, it was never possible, but you know, right, really now there is no, I don't think there is no one that says like, oh, I didn't know about that. <laughs> Do, what, we have a climate problem, oh, I didn't know about that. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, people could have still, you know, played ignorant, but I think now most people got, the, got it. And most people are suffering from the grief of realizing, oh, wow, we are really in a, in a big mess. And yet, um, you know, th this is almost like part of the process. And, and it's part of the process of like failing the first uh, pilot so that we as the species, the human species can try again. And, Maybe at the time we were not ready to hear, but we have also evolved with everything else in this system. And the earth has uh, its own way to stabilize complexity. And the more complexity, the more stabilizing she becomes. And, um, and so I think that we are like, 
in a way we are losing a lot of species and so decreasing the complexity of this system but in a, at the same taken at the same side we are actually increasing the complexity of the problem and um and I'm hoping that she's got some very genius ideas uh, that we are now ready to hear, which we cannot conceive of. They're not even present yet, but the seed was planted a long time ago. And um, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm totally delusional too. <laughs> when we launched this podcast with SAND co-founders, Zaya Maritza Bonazzo, this duo was my dream interview. I deeply respect the wisdom of non-dual direct path teacher Rupert Spira and scientist Donald Hoffman, whose research into the true nature of consciousness I feel is describing mathematically the same worldview that Rupert and the ancient wisdom teachers have been describing for centuries. I was really delighted in this interview as Donald and Rupert picked up right from their rapport from breakfast conversations together at sand conferences over the years in the past. One kind of way of looking at the world that consciousness can choose out of a countless number. Yeah. Don, can I ask you something about this? I've been actually meaning to ask you about this uh, since our last conversation. So um, I think you and I uh, agree that one could liken a human mind to a, a virtual reality headset made of thinking and perceiving that consciousness, so to speak, which is dimensionless, puts on the VR headset in a human being's case, this VR headset is made, made out of conceiving and perceiving, thinking and perceiving. And as a result, um, through the, the VR headset of thinking and perceiving, consciousness refracts itself and appears to itself as space and time, as, as time and space. So time correlates directly with thought. It, it, it's the only way we know time is through thinking and space through sense perception. So in a way, the, the, the one infinite consciousness appears as space and time. When consciousness looks at itself through a, a human mind, a, a, a VR headset of thinking and perceiving. Now, if, if it, it's a crude model, but if that that model has some truth in it, then um, what we are seeing out there, as, as what we know as space and time, is a reflection of the of the mind through which it is known, the per conceiving perceiving faculties of the mind. So, when a human mind, when our human mind, then wants to know, well, what is beyond space and time, in order to make that investigation, in order to discover what is beyond space and time, must it not expand the, it, the VR headset? It, it cannot. The, the, the human mind as we know it simply cannot know what is beyond space and time because space and time is a reflection of the limitations of a human mind. So to know what's beyond space and time really requires going deeply into the mind and transcending the limits of the mind. Yes, so, so the question is, in some sense, we're conceptually and perceptually stuck inside space-time, so how in the world can we as scientists... Yeah. somehow get outside of that. And, and I do run into that even in, in giving talks at, at scientific conferences. Um, 
I gave a talk where I talked about these structures beyond space-time, and I, I won't mention the, the name of the person who it was a very famous person who's working on consciousness, and he he he, he said. He didn't understand this. So are these things, are they like curled up inside space-time? And I said, no, no, they're utterly outside space-time. And, and the look on his face let me know that he had no clue what in the world I could possibly be talking about yes, yes, <laughs> uh, when yes. I said that. And so the way we do it is through mathematics. That's the, that's the power of mathematics. So space-time is a mathematical structure, right? We have Einstein's field equations for curved space-time or, or um, special relativity gives us a, um, a certain kind of space, um, Lorentz um, space, Lorentz transformation kind of space. So we can simply say, okay, those structures fall apart at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. They don't work. So let's propose new structures that mathematically could have, in the case of the amplitude heater, it could have thousands, millions, or billions of dimensions, not just four. And these are utterly outside. So we can write down all this mathematics and, and also the decorated permutations. In our theory of conscious agents, right, we can write down the mathematical models of the Markovian dynamics of conscious agents. There could be trillions of them, you know, however many you want. The, the dimensions of the thing could be, you know, Google dimensions, it's, it's, it, 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 we're, we're free to go there. And then we can just simply with mathematics say, now all that in, in incredible complexity gets projected into this four-dimensional simple little structure and that has such a grip on our imagination. But, but you, the way you get that thing to lose its grip is by using mathematics. The mathematics is the tool that we use to actually not just speculate that there could be something beyond space-time, but to actually go there precisely and make precise models that we can then project into space-time where we can make our measurements, right? We can only make measurements where we can observe them, which is inside space-time. So we, we do need to project all these higher dimensional things into space-time to test them. Um, but that, that's, that's how we do it. Um, and, and, and it's working quite well. When you let go of space-time, um, the mathematics gets simpler in a way. So when you try to compute, like when uh, physicists, experimental particle physicists, high, what they call high-energy physics, when they um, smash particles together, like you might have two gluons smashing into each other and four gluons go spraying out or... or Whatever it could be a, a photon that breaks into a quark antiquark pair, and then and these are called scattering events. And you can compute the probability of these various scattering events. And when you do it inside space time, um, because space time is in some sense the wrong framework, the mathematics is really, really nasty. To the two gluons in, four gluons out kind of thing, hundreds of pages of algebra for one interaction. But when you let go of space-time and you do it like with the amplitudehedron, um, two or three terms you can compute by hand, and you see new symmetries that are true of the data that you can't see inside space-time. So, so space-time has uh, actually, you know, I think the next generation is not going to have the problem we have of what do you mean beyond space-time? Because this generation that is raised in virtual reality playing virtual reality and taking a headset off, it's going to be a no-brainer to, well, so when I take that headset off, what about this? Could this be a headset too? Sure, why not? Why, why isn't this a headset? Okay, so what's beyond the headset? And all of a sudden, it's just not that hard to think outside of 
that, but, but to think precisely, you need the mathematics. And to actually make progress, there's no way to do it without the mathematics. And by the way, this is where I think, I mean, there could be a real dialogue that's profitable between science and spirituality. Both are talking about aspects of consciousness beyond space-time. And so I think there could be a real good dialogue. Again, humbly understanding that no matter what we write down is not, is not it, right? And yet also understanding, as we talked about earlier, there is some reward for being precise. There is some reward, even though you know, maybe the reward is that you know the limits of what you're saying, so you can't be dogmatic. And that, that's a big reward. It, it's, it, it really blocks dogmatism because your, your own theories, if they're good enough, will tell you, this is where I stop. Whereas just paper and pencil word theories typically don't do that, or not so clearly. They don't say 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and I stop. <laughs> they're, they're not that kind of precise. Right? Does that sort of answer the question? Sorry, Don, what did you say? Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, very much so, yes, 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 very much so. In addition to the live interviews I conduct for the podcast, we also feature audio from Sand Community Gatherings, which are hosted monthly by Zaya and Maurizio, with world-renowned guests like these two gentlemen, Dr. Gabor Mate has been a close friend of SAND, presenting many webinars and conferences and courses, and of course, hit the award-winning documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma. And in this interview from The Wisdom of Trauma Talks on Trauma series, Gabor and his guest, writer Resma Menikin, discussed the centuries-old echo of racialized trauma for white and black bodies. Now, I'm going to come to... Um some surprising statement in your book, maybe surprised to, it was startling to me when I first read it. Um, <clears throat> let me just find it, page um, 47. You say that um, it's easy to see how white body supremacy has created some wounds for many millions of African-American bodies over the past three centuries. It is less obvious what the inflicting of that trauma has done to white bodies. Mm, mm, mm. Um, now, let, let me just say, confess something here, okay? And I, I mean, this way, I don't know how this will sound, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Um, I remember Eldridge Cleaver in his book, Soul on Ice, mm -hmm. uh, talking about Elvis Presley coming along and thawing the frozen white asses of, of white people. This kind of a, when I look at black bodies, now this is reverse racism, I'm just being open about it, you tell me about it. I feel kind of envy because, because more somehow more free in their bodies, more loose, more grounded. Yeah than I'm capable of being. Am I fantasizing or is there something to that? Well, let me say it like this. Um, for, for, if I talk about this idea of what happened to the white body, the poor yeah. white body, at the yeah. hands of elite white bodies for a thousand years. I'm just going right after the fall of the Roman Empire and the, the time that we know as the Middle Ages and some Dark Ages, stuff like that, that for yeah. a thousand years, elite white bodies pillaged, raped, brutalized, stole land, um, right. enslaved, 
uh, uh, poor white bodies um, uh, for a thousand years. And then after 500 AD, and then at some point, uh, that body started to maneuver around the world, right? That, that body, that brutalization never dealt with in the white body. Right. And so what happens is, is that as that white body starts to move around, once that white body starts to come into contact with other with other bodies, what happens is, is that when you are victimized by something, right, you don't just learn the victim pieces. You also learn the perpetrator pieces. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the part that we forget is that the underbelly of victimization, the underbelly is perpetration because you learn both. Right. And so what happened was, and and this is my belief, is that that thousand years of brutality at the hands of other white bodies, that elite white bodies brutalize poor white bodies that 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 went by the time in the 1600s in Virginia, they got offered a chance to be something other than um, servants, other than being that which was brutalized. They got a chance to actually be white. It's the first time you begin to see in Virginia law, first time you begin to see the term white persons. At that moment, the white body became the standard of humanness. And what happened was, is that that all of that energy that, that, that was brutal in them, rather than it being going towards the elite white bodies, elite white bodies gave them something else by which they could blow that trauma through. And that was through black and indigenous bodies. So the frozenness, the moral injury that white bodies have and continue to have in the society creates a frozenness in their throat, in their bodies when they begin to talk about race. This is why when white bodies, when you begin to talk to white bodies about race, you you fall into a, to a, to a number of different tropes that happen. One is the rage response. Another one is the silence response and the constriction in the body. It is not just silence in terms of intellect. There is a silence in terms of when you do embodied work, you actually begin to see white bodies struggle with this area right here in the throat, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so those pieces, I believe, are pieces because the white body has not collectively seen race, race be necessarily a problem for them because mm-hmm. they are advantaged by the structure that yeah. the, the, what they lose in the process of that is part of their humanity, part of their sense of, of, of connection to other, hum, to, to, to other parts of humanity. And so, and so that, 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 that kind of frozenness that you just put your finger on is not just a frozenness in terms of, of culture. It is also a frozenness in terms of the pass down, in terms of the injury that never got dealt with among white bodies. In this next conversation, once again hosted by Zaya and Maurizio, they speak with indigenous activist Ariel Shekwe Derange, where she speaks about right relation with the earth from her perspective as a climate activist. Just some sort of wooey wooey land stuff, like go talk to some hippie somewhere else. And it's like, I'm not a hippie. I'm not a hippie. I'm not trying to like move towards. These are the values that I, I've seen them lived. I've seen them in practice. I've experienced them. I know what they are. And I know that there are other people that feel them. And I know that that land, those trees, those plants, those animals that exist in the water, on the land and in the air, they are our relatives. And humanity is responsible 
for the destruction of their habitats, the destruction of their water systems, the destruction of the air that they breathe. And we have a responsibility to be in right relationship with the land and with each other in order to get that because somewhere something happened in humanity's past and timeline where this fracture happened, where we disconnected ourselves, we unplugged ourselves and said we were more. And we have to undo that. We have to let go of that ego that humanity is more. Otherwise, we're going to continue to replicate these systems of harm. And that has been the impetus for me. I've seen this happen over and over again. That drives what I do every day. And it's not about saving my community anymore, although I'm sure I'd love to save my community. But the reality is, is this is more about how do we heal our traumas as humanity? And how do we move to a place of starting to see and be able to speak to the plants and the medicines so that we can learn from them the real solutions for how we move forward. And in my work, what I have found is it's that indigenous communities the world over that continue to hold that language that speaks with the natural world. And it's those communities that are going to be the pathways to rebalancing those relationships. Neil Thies is one of the most well-known authorities on complexity theory. And in this interview, I talk with Neil about his new book, Notes on Complexity. And Neil weaves a wonderful tapestry from the game of life through Kurt Gödel to mathematics, arriving at a place of deep embodied spirituality in this clip. And I, so we talked about a lot of conceptual things today, a lot of really beautiful models of reality. But as we get close to the end, I wanted to bring it back to the personal because there's a lot of really, I think, personal wisdom, embodied wisdom in your book. There's one quote that you say, we are not walking through the world. We are interwoven with it. In everything we do, we participate in complexity. And I think this really frames very eloquently the almost the path of non-duality that's experienced in complexity. So I'm in writing the book or in uh, how you imagine it'll be received, do you feel that there's a sort of societal implication to seeing ourselves as one through complexity? Yeah, sure. Part of me feels a little bit like if people had understood complexity principles 20, 30 years ago, would we have been able to avoid some of the political crazy around mm -hmm. things like climate change or how to develop an economy that doesn't crash? things like that. If kids were taught complexity in school, they would look at these things and know these aren't political questions. These are mathematical questions. And the answers are really simple according to those four little principles. And so then I felt a little bit like, what am I offering with this book? I know for me personally, it's been transformational in terms of it's the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon, but sometimes some of us need mm -hmm. a finger pointing. And complexity pointed me at things like emptiness of inherent existence, which were completely abstract things and have become given me access to direct experience. It's easy to say we are all one, but to experience that and in our world, which only trusts science in many yeah. ways, um, here's science telling us, no, that's what the world is. We are both separate and lonely individuals in a big, vast, largely empty universe. And at the same time, we are all 
exquisite expressions of that universe, undivided, completely seamless. But towards the end of the book, at the last minute, I added in a couple of paragraphs because I talk about this kind of view from complexity. But when the world is burning, what does that do for you? And I had an encounter with a young friend of ours who was expressing his anger and depression and fear over the world that's been left to him and that it's hopeless. And as I just described, mass extinction events happen. We're in the middle of a mass extinction event. We don't know if it's going to be total, but we certainly are seeing mass extinctions of species around the world, et cetera, et cetera. The climate, blah, blah, blah. And I think what complexity also does for me is helps me find a way in the face of a mass extinction. How do you find resilience to be okay in the middle of that? If one, complexity gives you the tools to analyze it and figure out how to change things to avoid the mass extinction. Doesn't mean you're gonna be able to do it. Sometimes it's too late. But I lived in the shadow of a huge mass extinction, the Holocaust. And I came of age as a young man, gay, in New York City during the AIDS years. And I saw Holocaust survivors who were lived but were wrecked by the experience. And I knew Holocaust survivors who could easily find joy every day. I knew people dying of AIDS who died in deep anger or fear or despair, um, but I know people who died in extraordinary bliss states. I think complexity points the way to finding joy and, and accessing bliss, even in the midst of the mass extinction event. And I had to put that in the book because that's the moment we're in now. That's the question now. It's happening. Does this help us? I think it does. Another one of my favorite conversations was with meditation teacher and writer Joan Tollefson. And Joan's humor and direct approach to meditation and awakening appeal to so many. And she's spoken at several SAND conferences, and I was honored to sit down with Joan to hear her speak so eloquently and directly about esoteric concepts like emptiness, awakening, and being here now. It's, the, the, it's also paradoxical because like with Be Here Now, for example, you mentioned that. I mean, the Be Here Now can be seen either as a pointer to a kind of practice or it can be seen as a description of the ever-present reality. You know, in other words, like when we say it as a practice to be, when we tell people to be here now, it refers to sort of shifting the attention away from the thought stories and bringing the attention to the bare happening of this moment, the sounds, the sensations, the visual images of this moment, and just being aware of presence itself and present experiencing. And that's called being here now. And of course, in that sense of the word, no one is ever being here now in that sense all the time, <laughs> because we all are sometimes caught up in stories and thoughts. Um, but the other way of seeing being here now is that it's just a description of the fact that here now is all there ever is, and it's what we are, and we can't really ever leave the now. We can't leave here, and by here I don't mean our geographical location, which appears here. I mean this presentness, this immediacy, this here nowness. 
um, is timeless and always right here. And there's no way out of it. And so even if we're lost in thought or caught up in an argument with somebody or whatever, all of that is what here now is doing. It's what it's what's it's what's showing up in here now being. So you can see that term in, in both of those different ways, and they're both valid. I mean, it is a valid practice um, that has something to offer. And then there's also a really important realization that, oh, you can't actually escape the now, which is a wonderful realization because when you have being here now as a practice, like you said, we can get caught up in feeling like, am I doing it right? And, and you know, some people actually like are thinking about what percentage of the time am I being here now and what percentage of the time am I not being here now and am I being here now as much as somebody else? And, you know, and just feeling this kind of effort to be here now and this constant judging of how well I'm doing at it. And that's all really um, painful and not really the point. So when we sort of do have this realization that everything is here now, um, it's very relieving and freeing. And there may still be an interest in being here now in the other sense, but what can fall away is that sort of sense of that it's this big thing that I have to do and that I'm either doing it right or wrong and I'm doing it 60% of the time or whatever. Another dynamic duo that has graced many sand talks and webinars in recent years are writers Bio Akumalafe and Sophie Strand. And in this community gathering hosted by Zaya and Maurizio, Bio and Sophie explore the emergence of new gods at the end of the world. And that if God is everywhere, then God is also this virus. There was this processual, relational, gentle, liminal thinking that was part of his offering that the virus is God, the virus is furniture, the virus is salvation, the virus is suffering, the virus is pain. Things are many things, right? At the same time, nothing exists by itself. But the act of pronunciation is the act of reducing the world to stability. It's like a wave function collapse, right? To from ethics to morality, you know, codes and rules for governing bodies and minds. It's, it's the collapse from, um, from chaos to order, from indeterminacy to determinacy, to definitions, to identity. But there are moments when mispronunciation becomes this crack, this trickster's crack that bursts through everything and upsets the established order. And I feel this is when new gods are born. Right, mispronunciation is not just verbal, it's a cosmic act. It's the invitation to the divine. Yes, maybe I'll stop there for now. Oh, I have so many thoughts, I love that. I mean, I also love the idea, like I'm deathly afraid of rabies and I have been attacked by rabid bats and animals before. And so this is like not con- conceptual, it's, it's real and lived. And for whatever yeah. reason, it's a phobia of mine. So I started praying to rabies because <laughs> I was like, you obviously want my attention. I have to start making eye contact with you in some way that's not going to be actually getting rabies. <laughs> I have to like start the dialogue before it becomes, it, it slips subperceptually into my actual body. Um, so I was just thinking about that in terms of the virus and 
how we, when we don't start the dialogue, the dialogue begins in a material incursion. That if we begin it in this kind of spiritual sense, we can perhaps avoid having to physically manifest it so it gets our attention. Um, but what I was thinking actually about is ecotones and about those moments where one ecosystem very dramatically becomes another. And mm -hmm. there's, this, there's this slice between the two, this gradient, this interface that you've talked about interfaces before. I think it's just such an yes. interesting idea. Um, where there's much more biodiversity. There are many more animals and species and types of animals in this brief overlap spot, this tension. The ecotone comes from household and from tension. So it's the mm -hmm. surface tension of two ecosystems not quite participating in each other. And that's where the most life comes about, is right in that spot. And so that spot to me is the crack. It's the place where two, two bodies are interacting in a way that it's, it's far exceeds moral categories, that they're creating friction and tension. Maybe they're rubbing the skin off of each other a little bit. It's a kind mm -hmm. of, it's a traumatic interface, but that's where the new gods are born, where new birds and new fish often come into being are in these like tidal zones. Um, mm. And I was thinking about this other idea I've been, I've been playing with lately is so we have these original cells that were unicellular and then mm -hmm. at a certain point, multicellularity comes into being, but what would that age feel like to the single cells? Like it must feel deeply traumatic to bump mm -hmm. into someone and to suddenly to never separate. Like, what does it feel like for, for these single selves to suddenly be making these concatenated larger selves permanently? And then I was mm -hmm. thinking about what you were saying in regards to trauma being a territory we're all inhabiting right now. It's, it's right. A, a place that we're living, not something that we own or can extract from ourselves. It's, some, it's a place we have to navigate. And yeah. I was thinking, like, what if trauma is the symptom of a moment when selves are becoming something quite different? And what if mm -hmm. trauma is this, is this interface between bodies that are merging? And in our final clip, we hear from mystical Baul singer and teacher, Pavarti Baul. And this is one of my favorite episodes to record because I got to watch Pavarti spontaneously burst into song with her majestic voice, soaring into my headphones as she embodied the teachings of the Baul tradition by singing, dancing, and flowing with the wisdom of her ancient lineage. Piriti is known by the Rasika, the connoisseur, the lover. Who brought that rasa, that cosmic water, into our body? The one who brought it, he left all. And he became in couple, in Jugala, Lakshmi and Narayana, and he lived in Goloka. Leave away your worldly attachments. Commit to the path of the Guru. If you follow the love, Piriti, you will find him. Just think about it for once. So if you commit, you find. For that, the price, you have to leave all the attachments.
So piriti is three letters and it is three kinds. But when it becomes solid inside and, and more intense and more united, it becomes one. After doing all the upasana, after doing all the practice, when one has become a master or perfected in the method of the practice, after that only the wish for love, the true love will come. And Chandida says, one who has such a wish, I hold his feet in my heart. Because all the vichara, all the judgment, all the practice, everything is before this. When one becomes in that state of love, there is no difference for him. There is no jati kuloman, the pride or ego or boundaries, nothing exists. Everybody's own. It's a family that becomes. Everything your own and nothing is your own. Prem piriti jejan janaye पाईते पारे गोशोकी शेषे पाईते पारे ब्रह्मांडो व्यपिया अच्छा ये जेजानी के होना देखो ये तारे प्रेम पीरिति जेजान जाना ये Prempiriti je jan janaye Sheishe paite pare koshoki Sheishe paite pare Piriti piriti pinti akhoro Piriti bhajano shari राग मार गए जे जन भजनों कोडी बे प्राप्ति होई बे तार गोशोकी प्राप्ति होई बे तार मृत्तिकारु परे जलेरो बोशोती ताहरो यू परे ढेव रशिक रशेरो पीरिती रशिको जानो ये 
भजते भजते भजन And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.